December 3rd, 1926. It's a cold, dreary English night, and a young woman is on the verge of total devastation. Dealing with both her mother's recent death and the news that her unfaithful husband wanted out of their marriage, she packs a bag, dashes off a few hurried letters, and takes off into the darkness. The next morning, her car is found abandoned at the countryside, caught in bushes and precariously dangling over the precipice of a deep pond. She is nowhere to be found. The police open an investigation, and a countrywide manhunt ensues. One newspaper story becomes 10, becomes ongoing front-page coverage. In the early 20th century version of a media circus, everyone is looking for her. It takes 11 days to find her, and when they do, press reports indicate she is completely dissociated from reality. She has no idea who she is. She doesn't even recognize her husband. The question of her whereabouts has been answered, but it seems the real mystery is just beginning. And the missing young woman, whose story sounds ripped from a mid-century British novel? None other than the queen of mystery herself, Agatha Christie. Hello and welcome to Annotated. I'm Rebecca Shinsky. And I'm Jeff O'Neill. On today's episode, the true story of Agatha Christie's 11-day disappearance and the mystery that continues to surround it. This episode is brought to you by Penguin Random House Audio. Want to give audiobooks a try for your next book club pick but don't know where to start? They provide suggested questions, discussion points, and recommended titles. Today, Penguin Random House Audio is recommending First Person, written by Richard Flanagan and read by David Linsky. It's the hypnotic story of a ghost writer writing the memoir of a notorious con man and the events that unfold as their lives intertwine. This compelling audiobook will lead you eager to discuss it. Visit tryaudiobooks.com slash bookriot and bring your book club meetings to a new level. Start listening today. At the time of her disappearance in 1926, Agatha Christie wasn't yet famous writer Agatha Christie. Her first book, The Mysterious Affair at Styles, had introduced readers to detective Hercule Poirot six years earlier. And she'd had some modest success with the handful of novels she'd published since, but she was far from a household name. In fact, Buzz had just begun to build about Christie's work a few months earlier when The Murder of Roger Ackroyd came out and shocked readers with the revelation that the narrator was the murderer. Ah, the unreliable narrator. Interesting. You could say she is the original Gongo. Absolutely, there are many parallels. This is Laura Thompson, author of a new biography, Agatha Christie, A Mysterious Life. I think up to the point of 1926, honestly, nothing bad had ever happened to her. She had a lovely life. And then in April 26, her mother died. And I think her mother was the person whom she loved most, always terribly close. And then in August 26, her husband, whom she adored, told her he was in love with another woman and could she possibly give him a divorce? And I think those two things coming very close upon each other in a life that had been rather charmed, you know, sent her that we would probably have a proper name for it today. We would probably call it a breakdown. A woman racked with grief and anger disappears, abandoning her car midway. And for 11 days, the newspapers report every twist and turn in the story. They're amazing. Quote, where is Mrs. Christie? Was it foul play in the, quote, mystery of missing woman novelist? In another, hounds search for novelist. Dogs join search on the Surrey Downs. The Daily News even printed doctored photos of Agatha Christie in potential disguises to help eagle-eyed readers spot her. And when she does turn up at Harrogate Hydro, a famous spa of the day, or as the Daily Sketch wrote, Miss Agatha Christie found alive, the papers wrap up the story with a dramatic bow. Quote, Colonel Christie told the Daily Herald that his wife had suffered from the most complete loss of memory. 
she does not know why she is here. So the press reports nothing of her motive, nothing about Colonel Christie's affair, only that Mrs. Christie was in a complete fugue state, gone crazy, and forgotten her identity, mystery solved. It's all rather tidy. And after a journey home that had almost as many steps as an Ocean's Eleven-style heist, switching trains and taking circuitous routes to evade reporters and prying eyes, the Christies never spoke of it again. The 11-day stretch became a lacuna in Agatha Christie lore. Friends and family were forbidden to mention it, and Christie, who went on to become the most famous mystery writer of all time, omitted it from her autobiography. Maybe she just wanted to maintain a little mystery? Whatever her motives, she certainly left an interesting riddle. Because while the public story was that she'd gone out of her mind, the private story is much more twisty-turning. Okay, so let's back up. It's December 3rd, 1926. Agatha Christie has just lost her mother and found out her husband is leaving her, so she packs a bag to get away for a little while. Right, and on her way out, Christie writes three letters. One to her husband, Archie. One to her longtime friend and secretary, Charlotte. And one to Archie's brother, Campbell Christie. I think the letter to her brother-in-law, to Campbell Christie, is the key. Years later, she stayed friendly with him. And my reading of that is that he was the one person who was kind of on nobody's side, and he was going to act as intermediary. And she wrote him this letter, which was posted in London, saying something like, I'm going up north, north of England. I'm unhappy. I, I need to sort myself out, you know which is kind of exactly what she did. (laughs) Or it's what she intended to do. Kind of. The whole story is a lot stranger and a whole lot less straightforward. Okay, so she writes the letters, packs her bag and hits the road, and then things get weird. So she drove off into the night. She drove close to where Archie was spending the weekend with his friends and his girlfriend, Nancy Neal, and then she abandoned the car And then she took a train to London. And then I think it's at that point that she thought about going to Harrogate. That's right. She heads off in the direction of the home where her husband is hanging out with his friends and his new lover, because that's a totally normal thing to do. But then she changes her mind, turns around, spends the night in her car in the middle of nowhere in December in a very dark place overlooking a very deep pond, you know, as one does and then abandons the car and catches a train to London. And it's there that she mails the letter to Campbell Christie. It's Saturday morning now, and she figures someone will find her abandoned car and notify Archie, who will spend a few days totally distraught. Talk about a way to ruin your ex's weekend with his new gal before the letter gets to Campbell, and then they'll come up north to find her. And then what exactly? She was thinking, clearly... I'm going to disappear. I'm going to get my husband back by making him feel guilty or sorry for me or something. Her plan was to disappear, to open the mystery of where has Agatha gone, and then lead Archie back to her by, you guessed it, laying clues. The letter to Campbell Christie is the first, most obvious, and most important one. I'm going up north to sort myself out would mean something pretty clear to Campbell and Archie. And Agatha does indeed travel north from London and then checks into Harrogate Hydro. She's right where she told them she'd be. It's fascinating because in English terms, Harrogate is where someone like Agatha Christie disappears. It's still really in character, upper middle class, fantastically respectable. You know, she was never going to disappear in the East End of London, if you know what I mean. So Agatha Christie disappears to a totally Agatha Christie place. But she's Agatha Christie, so she's not going to be 100% obvious. And that's why, at the Harrogate, she is not Agatha Christie. Is all this making sense? 
She checks in under the name Teresa Neal. Remember, Archie's new girlfriend is named Nancy Neal. And here's the kicker, folks. At the time, Posh Destinations published the names of their guests in the papers each week. She thinks Archie is going to scan the fancy North of England spa announcements in the paper, see the name Teresa Neal, and know it's really Agatha punking him. And that will make him want to go find her and get the band back together? I know it sounds bonkers, but yeah, that's pretty much it. Disappear into the night, freak everyone out by leaving the car dangling over a cliff, and let them worry for a couple days before Campbell gets the letter in the mail on Monday and leads Archie to her for their inevitable reunion. She's Agatha freaking Christie. She's pretty sure this is going to work. So she settles in at the Harrogate, and she waits. And she waits. And waits. But Archie and Campbell don't show. Turns out, Campbell received the letter on Saturday, the same day Agatha mailed it, and he ignored it, for reasons that remain a mystery. And then, when Agatha's abandoned car was found and the police got involved, they heard about the letter, and they ignored it too! That, ladies and gentlemen, is how you bork what should be an open and shut case. This is just the beginning. After they ignore the here's where to find me letter and presumably never even pick up on the Teresa Neal nugget in the Harrogate's announcements, the police launch a 10-day search that grows to ridiculous proportions. At one point, more than 10,000 people were out looking for the missing Mrs. Christie. And all the while, Agatha's hanging out at the Harrogate, wringing her hands and watching herself become front page news. She was not she was not in her right mind because she thought it would remain a private tragedy. She could disappear and only affect one person, which was clearly not going to happen. Agatha passes the days as one does when one has taken to the spa for a retreat. She goes shopping in town, spends long afternoons reading in her room, shares meals with fellow travelers, and even sings one night in the hotel. She buys lovely new dresses and joins the local library and goes for long walks while thinking of story ideas. And all that sounds nice enough, but it's not exactly what you'd expect from a heartbroken woman whose big plan to get her husband back has just gone terribly sideways. Nothing about this story is what you'd expect. Agatha Christie, queen of plot, knows how to lay out clues, and she's used to being in control of the story. But now her main characters have tossed the biggest clue. All of England knows there's something going on with her, and Archie hasn't rushed in to beg her to take him back. What can you really do but get a massage and make the best of it? This episode is brought to you by Penguin Random House Audio. As the premier publisher in the audiobook industry, Penguin Random House Audio is dedicated to producing top-quality audiobooks written and read by the best in the business. Today, they're recommending Macbeth, written by Joe Nesba and read by Ewan Morton. This masterful retelling of the English classic is set in a 1970s rundown industrial town where the police are struggling to squash an incessant drug problem. Head of SWAT Inspector Macbeth and Chief of Police Duncan must confront Hecate, drug lord and master manipulator. Actor Ewan Morton's Scottish brogue brings the heart-pounding thriller to life. Visit tryaudiobooks.com slash bookriot for more book club suggestions and other titles from Penguin Random House Audio. After 10 days of waiting, during which she goes from annoyed that Archie hasn't found her to distressed that basically everyone in the world knows who she is and is looking for her, to totally bored and just over the whole thing, Agatha's cover finally gets blown. On Sunday, December 12th, two members of the Harrogate's band tell the local police they're pretty sure that the Mrs. Teresa's Neal they've been seeing around the spa is actually Mrs. Christie from the newspaper. The next morning, Agatha catches her chambermaid looking at her a little funny, and her spidey senses tell her that the jig is up. The following evening, on December 14th, Archie arrives at last, 
but it's not exactly the tearful, slow motion running into each other's arms she was hoping for. Whatever Agatha saw when she first laid eyes on Archie, it wasn't good. Or so we can assume because she sees him and tells a fellow guest that her brother has come and isn't that nice. Then she and Archie go to dinner. What must that meal have been like? And when they emerge, Archie tells the hordes of reporters who have swarmed the usually quiet Harrogate she does not know who she is. And that's the story for the next 50 years, that Agatha Christie lost her mind and went into a fugue state. Archie takes her back to London, and the trip home is just absurd as they try to avoid the press. When they get home, Archie doesn't stay. Of course he doesn't stay. Agatha has put their private business on the street, and her cockamamie plan was never going to work. So Archie leaves for good, and she is devastated again. She's also humiliated that not only has her private heartbreak played out in public, but some people even suspected her of faking it all as a publicity stunt. You think there's anything to that theory? Not according to Laura Thompson, who told me about her own reenactment of the night Agatha ran away. I drove to the house, I drove to where she abandoned the car and everything. And honestly, I was scared. I was really scared. And that's so silly, you know, because in another part, I was quite enjoying myself. But it it was to do it, to go through with it. Because I can't tell you that Newlands Corner where the car is, it's almost like a cliff edge, which, of course, as a metaphor, is very very, um, apt. But it's a beauty spot. But for England, it's quite extreme, you know. And... um, That's how I knew it wasn't a stunt or anything, the idea that she was doing it for publicity. I mean, it did make her much more famous, but chiefly in ways she did not want to be. It affected, she lived for another 50 years and they were all sort of blighted by it in a way. Her daughter said to me, you know, I could never mention my father's name. I could, you know, it's very, very odd. Imagine living with this secret for 50 years and never talking about it, not even in your own almost 600-page-long autobiography. That cannot have been easy. But the prospect of any more public humiliation was harder. The Fugue State cover story kept her from having to explain anything else. If she had forgotten for a minute who she was, how could she be expected to account for what she had done? But the cover story isn't as simple as that because it also protected Archie, who had destroyed the letter Agatha left him, presumably because it referred to his affair with Nancy Neal, and he didn't want the police or anyone to know about that. Agatha's reputation might have been cooked, or so it seemed at the time, but he still had the opportunity to do damage control. And so mum was the word for Archie and Agatha Christie, though Agatha actually did use the whole incident a few years later in a novel called An Unfinished Portrait that she published under the pseudonym Mary Westmacott. It's that account that provides whatever insights we do have about her state of mind at the time of her disappearance. It's undeniably a sad story, but it sure asks a fascinating question. How did the queen of plot get it so wrong? She's so complex. And like clever people, you know, their motives are mixed and you never quite get to the bottom of them. But she was a bit like an archeological project, really. Agatha Christie was clever, certainly, but it seems that the very thing that made her extraordinary as a writer was her downfall as a scheming woman scorned. You see, one of Agatha's core beliefs was that character was fixed and permanent, that people were predictable and unchanging. This made her a master on the page where she could lay out foreshadowing, control what her characters knew and when, and hit readers with solutions that somehow felt both surprising and inevitable. 
But what she didn't understand was that while you can control the twists and turns and astonish readers with I should have seen it coming all along reveals from outside the story, it's not nearly as easy when you make yourself a character and try to control the plot from the inside. And whether she realized it or not, that's exactly what Agatha had done. I mean, think about what it must have been like for her. In Poirot, she's created a logical, clue-following detective with considerable psychology chops, and she's just started to make a little name for herself. All signs point to Agatha Christie knowing how to place clues that people will follow. But for that to happen, the people have to recognize them as clues, and this one's the real key, they have to respond to the clues with logic, and only logic. There's no room for pesky human emotions when you're solving a mystery. Or when you're writing one. And I think that's the first mistake Agatha Christie made here. She was used to things going her way. She had had, as Laura Thompson told us earlier, a lovely life. Even in the depths of her despair, as she packed her bag and wrote those letters, it never occurred to her that things wouldn't go to plan, or that humans aren't controllable and predictable like characters in a book. Or that her plan was a little half-baked? And there's that. So you have the mystery of the missing Mrs. Christie that Agatha tries to lay out with her clues. Then you have the mystery the police are trying to solve, which includes the possibilities that Agatha committed suicide. The circumstances of her disappearance and the abandoned car did make them wonder, or that Archie murdered her. And then there's the juiciest mystery of all. What the heck was going on with her that she thought this plan would win Archie back in the first place? And moreover, what even was the plan? Was it just to head north to the countryside? Because if that's the case, why did she start off in the direction of the house where Archie was staying with his friends and Nancy Neal? And if that was a spontaneous idea she had thought better of, what else was off the cuff? Abandoning the car? How far in advance had she planned? And how not herself was she? What you're getting at here is that it doesn't seem like the Fugue State story is 100% fiction. It's deeply weird and confusing that someone known to be a methodical thinker and meticulous plotter missed the giant, gaping holes in probably the most important plot she ever invented. Or, and here's a big or, everything happened precisely as she intended. After all, once this whole escapade is over... Archie and his girlfriend, Nancy Neal, don't end up together. Whereas Agatha introduces Miss Marple the very next year and, in 1930, gets married to the man she would be with for the rest of her life. You're not actually suggesting this is a long con. And the failed plan was actually the real plan? Who knows? After her life got flipped turned upside down, Agatha Christie went on to publish more than 70 additional books, get super famous for a little story called Murder on the Orient Express, and, oh, become the best-selling author of all time, with more than two billion, that's a B, books sold today. Either way, she probably didn't realize that when she was going Gone Girl at the Harrogate, but she was just getting started in the business of keeping people guessing. And we're still guessing today. I think it was an emotional breakdown, but they always happen in a particular way because of who you are, and she was Agatha Christie. So what did she do? She laid clues. She turned it almost into a, a mystery. And it's the greatest mystery she ever wrote because nobody really can solve it. And that probably includes her because I think she went into a, a, a black place where she lost her identity, if you like. As for that mystery, well, you kind of have to love the Agatha Christie of it all. This episode of Annotated was written and produced by me, Rebecca Shinsky. Production assistance from Jeremy Desmond and Kyle O'Neill. Laura Thompson's biography of Agatha Christie, called Agatha Christie, A Mysterious Life, is available now wherever books are sold. Our thanks to Penguin Random House Audio for sponsoring this season of Annotated. 
Go to tryaudiobooks.com slash bookwrite for great audiobook recommendations. And to celebrate Season 2, Penguin Random House Audio is giving away my 10 favorite books about books that came out last year. So to enter for a chance to win them, go to bookriot.com slash annotated2. That's the number two. And if you like annotated and want there to be more, the best, most helpful thing you can do right now is go rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. And telling other people to listen doesn't hurt either. Until next time, thanks for listening.